Hello, welcome to Minority Report. I'm your host, Salomon Flamenco. On today's episode, we have Brian Castro, president of DIG, that is Diversity Inclusion at Georgetown. Uh, I wanted him on because I wanted to talk about diversity inclusion at Georgetown, which we did end up talking about. But we also had this really pretty in-depth conversation about his work and his studies that involve a lot of public health advocacy and vaccine diplomacy, which is how countries in this day and age kind of barter with each other, right? And this soft power that is vaccine access, which to me doesn't sound like soft power. It sounds like a pretty vital hard power in terms of the lives of people, but that's something we talk about in this conversation. Um, I hope you all enjoy. He's really cool. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. Who are you and what do you do? So I'm a master's student at the School of Foreign Service. I'm pursuing a master's of science in foreign service, and I'm concentrating in science, technology, and international affairs. That's the hat that I wear throughout the week, but I am also a senior program officer with Johnstone Inc., a public health consulting firm, and I am also a Google fellow working on digital divide and tech policy development. That's really cool, but can you explain more what that means? Like, what does that entail in terms of what your schoolwork here has been? Sure, absolutely. So the Measures of Science and Foreign Service program here at Georgetown is a very popular program. It's very comprehensive. It's very large. And it's got these four different domains that many students can go into. There's this security route, global politics and security, that is very popular. There's this international development route as well. And then there's this global business piece. And then the newest one is the one that I'm a part of. It's called Science, Technology, and International Affairs. So it brings all of those different conversations into this nexus, right, of international relations and affairs of how science, how technology kind of comes together and how we operate as a global community. Mm-hmm. So where I come in with that public health angle is that I do vaccination program management and vaccine diplomacy. That's really cool. How has your background informed your academic trajectory? So I, w- I think I, w- I could probably start off with undergrad. So I went to Iowa State University and I'm from the Midwest, I'm from Chicago. And at Iowa State, I was a part of this program called Global Resource Systems because I was just this curious student that I wanted to know about the world. And I you know, started the program and learned a lot about just how systems work abroad. And that led me to, you know, after I graduated, I joined the Peace Corps. And I did Peace Corps in Burkina Faso, which is a little country in West Africa, about the size of Colorado. And it's this landlocked country. And I was a health volunteer. And in that experience, I one of my favorite things that I did was was baby weighing day. And it was this day every Wednesday where we would go to the health facility of the community and mothers and caregivers would bring their children to weigh them to kind of document their growth, but also to give them their immunizations. Mm-hmm. And that is how I think my pre- my professional career kind of brought me here to to Georgetown. Because after I finished my Peace Corps service, I was hired by a public health consulting firm called Jon Snow, Inc. under their immunization team. So for about five years, I worked with backstopping teams with incredibly smart people from around the world to implement these immunization programs Mm -hmm. to kind of help these 
teams, these ministries of health abroad to develop their routine immunization programs. So for example, in the U.S., when you are born, by law, there's a mandate that you have to have a series of immunizations, and that's for your health, for your community's health, but then also it is just a policy that, that, that we keep our community safe. That sort of development is not the same everywhere else. And so countries are still developing this process and trying to get their routine immunization systems up to, up to speed and up to par so that they can protect their communities. And that's what I did before coming to Georgetown, is supporting these teams to roll out and create the system where they can capture their populations to immunize them. Mm -hmm. And um, I loved my job. And I still do. I still do that right now, even though I'm a student. But then all of a sudden, this thing happened. I don't know if you've heard of it called COVID. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, immunization vaccinations, vaccines was in everyone's mouths, was, was the thing that everyone was talking about. And to me, professionally, it was like, oh, I have job security. I have, I have, I have, I have a space that I, that I can, can stick to professionally. But it also opened up this new realm of discussions about how countries need vaccines mm -hmm. and how majority of the power of those vaccines to manufacture them, to create them, to disseminate them is actually held by a small group of countries. And so now vaccines are becoming, have become this, this commodity, this, this, this need that many countries have so that they can protect their, their citizens. Mm -hmm. And so my employer was like, all right, Brian, it's time for you to get your master's. And I landed on this program, which had the science and technology piece and it merged with international affairs. Mm -hmm. And then that's how we come to vaccine diplomacy. That makes a lot of sense, because even while you were speaking about it, I thought back to my undergrad and just lessons we had in IR and comparative politics, you know, almost like not war gaming, but thinking about how these power plays do affect their spheres of influence. So I guess just for the people, let's talk more about vaccine diplomacy. Could you define that in a way that would be almost accessible to the common person? What does vaccine diplomacy mean? Oh, boy, that is that is a very good question. I have to think about it for a little bit. <clears throat> I would say vaccine diplomacy is a tool used by governments to create strong partnerships with other states mm -hmm. within the realm of having a shared interest of protecting communities. Because now we live in this globalized world, right, where we are here today, but in a matter of hours, we can be hundreds of miles away. So that's how connected our, our, our world is. Mm -hmm. And diseases take advantage of that. And so, Vaccine diplomacy facilitates that dissemination, that proliferation of products that help us stay safe and healthy. I'm wondering, that's in the best case scenario. Yes. Right? And I'm wondering, <laughs> when, we, when I first reached out to you, we were talking about this, and we were specifically talking about China, China and Latin America, right? Yes. So I'm really interested in how vaccine diplomacy plays out in that realm. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So if we think back 
into 2021. So we are a couple months into the pandemic. And this is something, you know, many people who, majority of the, of the people who, who have experienced it have never had, this is the first time that they've experienced a pandemic to this scale, right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, everything closed on. Work is, is different. Our, our entire lives changed. And there was now a race for countries to develop a solution, to, to develop an answer to this threat that was emerging. And so the global actors, the great economic powers, US, Russia, China, started to pull their fund their funding together to develop different types of vaccines or, you know, fast track these vaccines into clinical trials so that we can actually roll them out. Because Normally, vaccines take around five years or mm -hmm. so to actually be, be developed. But through Operation Warp Speed, which is, which was the U.S. program that really pushed the envelope on, onto moving the development of those vaccines. China, when we were talking about this, China has this immense manufacturing capacity, right? They have, we're, we're talking about billions of people and that they have the, the infrastructure, the resources, the connections, all of this that was utilized into the efforts of, of making a vaccine. And they were the ones who developed one of the first types of, of, of COVID vaccines. Mm -hmm. And so, because they beat the United States to develop these vaccines, they started to share these vaccines abroad to all of these countries as a response for COVID, but of course, to also strengthen their international relations with them as well, right? Latin America was, was a particularly specific region that I, th that I, that I find fascinating because well, Latin America is the U.S.'s closest neighbor. It's arguably, well, Latin America does have its strongest trade partner is the United States. Some countries, mostly I'm talking about Mexico or so. But when we also talk about Latin America, we're talking about 33 different countries, right? And so it's not it's not a monolith. It's not one specific region. There's so many competing priorities that all these countries have. But right in that year, in 2021, the United States had not developed a, a, a vaccine yet but China had. And then we started to see thousands, millions of vaccines started to show up within the region or so. And, you know, think about the perspective of, of these countries. You know, at the peak of the pandemic, Latin America was the region that had the greatest impact, I would say, because they had the most excess mortalities due to the pandemic at the height of it. More people were dying within Latin America at this time. And so when the vaccines popped up, of course, governments were, were wanting to accept these vaccines and, and, and pass them along. But there was a catch. And some countries would be given these vaccines or, were, or, were be, or would give access to vaccines if they would side with some of the diplomatic decisions or likings of China. Mm -hmm. Paraguay, for example, you know, that they have always recognized Taiwan as a country. And at the time, there were reports that a lot of whistleblowers started to, to, to push out that it said that China was trying to, was, was willing to give vaccines to Paraguay if they would relinquish ties with Taiwan. So now, now we have these vaccines that are a potential solution to the biggest problem that our current generation is facing, and yet that they can be accessed if they would cut ties with another country. That is the use of, of soft power within vaccine diplomacy or so, that 
one completely can alter the way that countries operate with each other and then also give countries like China more power and more influence within the region. And that is something that you thought the United States is very, very interested in and concerned about mm-hmm. because they want to keep their relationship with the, with the region and they want to maintain it. And But now if you have another large global actor kind of coming in and providing the, the, the solutions, now we have this issue of, you know, where, where does the allegiance of Latin America lies? Mm-hmm. So it was incredibly fascinating. And Paraguay did not relinquish its ties. They did not, you know, they still recognize Taiwan mm-hmm. as a country. And ultimately what happened was that once, once time progressed and the United States finally developed multiple different types of, uh, of vaccines and some that had breakthrough technologies like mRNA vaccines, we started to see that these mRNA vaccines that were developed by Pfizer, Moderna or so had a higher efficacy than those Chinese vaccines that came out way earlier. So, yeah. It's interesting, though, that it's characterized as soft power, isn't it? Because I feel like typically soft power is seen as like cultural artifacts almost, you know, this seems... Direct, right? Yeah, this seems pretty... <laughs> but again, it's not like it isn't hard power either. It seems like almost a nebulous type of middle ground, right? Yeah, that's yeah. interesting, especially because it utilizes science. I guess I'm thinking about the complicated nature of all these relationships, right? Like there's a quote I read somewhere. I forget if it was about Africa or Latin America, but it was a minister of some sort saying, when China comes, they bring money. And when the U.S. comes, they bring a lecture. Right? <laughs> and then the U.S. person says, well, that's why you shouldn't listen to China. And you like, see, here comes the lecture. <laughs> and so, like, I'm, I'm not a tanky. I'm not, like, defending it. But, I mean, what do you think about that in terms of the complicated history, let's call it, between the U.S. and Latin America. Oh, boy, you, that is a, that is a big box that we can definitely spend so much time on because, um, yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's definitely something, and you know, like, if we put ourselves within the perspective of these, of these Latin American countries, and I think that there's so many in- incredible scholars and academics who, who have talked about this, where, and there's evidence to share that, that many of these Latin American countries feel that they've been somewhat neglected by the relationships of the United States, right? Mm-hmm. We had, we had George W. Bush, Obama kind of proclamate these large sort of partnerships that they would have to bring investments in and, you know, expand their relationships with the United States or with Latin America. But then all of a sudden something happens, right? And then now the priority is different, right? For 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 Bush it was the war on terrorism, right? Mm-hmm. And then for, for Obama it was multiple of things, including, you know, this like healthcare, Obamacare. There's there are so many things. And so from the perspective of those of, of, of those countries, you know, why is it that, you know, Americans or America as as a country, the United States is a large economic power has a, has a very high GDP, and then you just cross the border, and then all of a sudden the quality of life diminishes. Mm-hmm. And so, where is this? Where is the difference? Yes, I, I I do think that they that the United States can definitely improve their relationships with Latin America, and there's been you know previous presidents who have done this right with the with the Monroe Doctrine. Mm-hmm. Right, this was a a diplomatic tool that was used to sever the influence that, you know, like European countries would have within the Western Hemisphere. And so that kind of helped the United States keep some sort of 
more of an influence in these countries. But when I when the remote when the Monroe Doctrine was was created, I don't think that they had China in mind, right? It was yeah. mostly in response to these European countries. Mm -hmm. And so now with China's newly evolved forms of, of of promoting their country abroad and how they're using these different tools, I think is very different because China, China, back in 2013, they started this Belt and Silk Road mm -hmm. initiative. Sorry, Belt and Road initiative. Based on the old Silk Road. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. And I'm sure that you, yeah. you've already talked about this with other people who know way more better. So, but I think it's 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 just an incredibly strategic tool for China to establish or strengthen their their relationships with these countries. Mm -hmm. And so, but one of the things I will say, and then I'll stop this Belt and Road Initiative tangent, is that I think lots of Latin American countries are still confused about what is the BRI. Like, what mm -hmm. is it that can actually, what is the investment, what, what it is? And the Chinese perspective would be, well, it's, it's whatever you want it to be, mm -hmm. right? Which is such this ambiguous language or so yeah. that, you know, it is it is the source of investment that, that you can tap into. And so by China providing these sorts of investments to other countries abroad or so, some of these countries whose economies are less or are, are not as strong as as the United States per se, you know, can become susceptible to debt traps and get into these sort of systems where they cannot repay the loans that China has given them. And then now China has more influence on them mm -hmm. as well. So, yeah, it's it's very fascinating because once we have, like, as we see China's emergence coming up, there is a response from the United States and, and from all of these other global actors, right? Of, like, how is it that we can manage this, 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 this growing emergence? And it's not even just happening in the Western Hemisphere with Latin America, right? There's this this they call it the quad right the quadrilateral dialogue that is the united australia japan and india right these these countries that are sort of surrounding china and trying to maintain those good relationships and you know are are then is that itself was be was was developed in response to china's growing power mm -hmm. let's stay on that topic of information access though okay and confusion how do you best see yourself filling that information access gap? Myself, as an individual? Or what can you add to... Sure, let's keep it individual <laughs> and then let's see what you can add to that conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, Solomon, like our, our lives are online, right? Our everything that we do, you know, when you edit this podcast, you're going to use a, a sophisticated software. Yeah. When we just our our lives just operate online and we'll continue to go into this technological trajectory right mm -hmm. and when i think about that and as i you know have my 60 tabs open and i'm you know paying bills over here and then also creating another plan over here and things like that like i think back and i was like you know i used to do this too as a as a child but it looked very different mm -hmm. as technology became became a little bit more sophisticated and started to you know become a little bit more pervasive in, in our lives it was being created under under an assumption right that we all i guess in my experience that we all read and speak english mm -hmm. and you know when internet's when, when the internet came to our communities and into our our home 
as a as a ten year old, I remember setting up the internet to myself because I was the one talking to the person who could help us, as opposed to my parents, right? And this this relationship that I think a lot of first generation Americans have with their with their parents is that you know we we are sort of the gateway to a lot of this information that is through technology mm-hmm. and or access of technology as well. So individually, what I see my role into this is to contribute to trying to hold these technology companies accountable to make sure that you know it's not just english-speaking americans that use these products right there are 66 million people in the u.s who don't operate in english Mm -hmm. and you know 50 million of them are spanish speakers right and so we're missing this group of people to provide accurate Good information, access to to technology, which is in return access to markets, mm-hmm. and these these sorts of programs have to be developed so that we have more a more inclusive approach. Mm-hmm. And you're talking specifically about social media companies or technology companies in general. In in general, any mm-hmm. I think any any company, which I think is most companies that are moving into into using technology within their systems, whether if that's through access to customers, to their platforms, to payments, or even just news accessibility, right? Mm-hmm. Even even when we, when we talk about news and, and, and information, we also have to talk about mis- and disinformation, right? And these people who, who I, I, was, I was talking about before, you know, are more susceptible to mis- and disinformation. Yeah. WhatsApp groups and yeah, exactly. I, yeah. <laughs> exactly. For context, where are your parents? Where's your family from? So both of my parents are Mexican. They are Mexican immigrants. My mother is from Mexico, Guadalajara. Mm-hmm. My father is from Zacatecas, which is they're both in the northern state of Jalisco. But I myself was born in Chicago. Yeah. I was I was wondering about that because that was something I knew about you beforehand, and I I know that there's a large Mexican population in Chicago, but I feel especially when you look at like Latino demographics in the U.S., Mexicans are typically associated with like Mexico or the <laughs> California, Texas, New Mexico. What's it like in Chicago? I mean, can, is there any like cultural specificity there with the diaspora? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I mean, the largest. Latino diaspora in the Midwest exists in in Chicago, mm-hmm. right? And it it continues to grow. I I myself didn't even have the need or didn't know how to speak English until I was five, until I actually went to school, right? Because mm-hmm. my entire community was 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 uh, Spanish speaking, and through my corner, a, it was an overwhelming amount of of Mexicans, but. There was so such a mix of, of different Central American, South American folks that were there, but it's quite incredible to walk around in Chicago. And you know, I haven't spent too much time in in California or Arizona, Texas, but I would imagine that it's a it was somewhat similar to my experience growing up in Chicago, where you just walk in your community, in your streets, and like there's panaderias, there's there's taquerias, there's mm-hmm. all of these different businesses that are that are that are tied to all culture, yeah, which is amazing. It's a bit warmer. Yes, yes, yes. That that is true. Why do your family pick Chicago, or is it just like there was already family there that they followed? You know, I think it was probably a little bit of that. It was probably you know 
someone that they've known from from their back from their community back home or so that that they knew it was like oh that there's you know opportunity here mm -hmm. in chicago you should come here and i think that's how the pipeline worked right i think that's how many how my, migration movements work is that they go to places where they're they're comfortable or or familiar with like yeah yeah I've never thought if like, well, what if my parents immigrated and went like just to California, right? Like mm -hmm. me as a Californian, I love my identity as a as a Southside <laughs> Chicago, <laughs> Chicano. So, but uh, yeah, it's fun to think about. <laughs> yeah. I guess what I this is I don't go on a tangent, but I'm thinking about it because Illinois, from my understanding, is red-ish outside of Chicago, right? Yeah. So I, I feel very curious about your specific niche as Mexican American from Illinois, but Chicago tackling vaccines and seemingly misinformation about vaccines. If you want to go off on that tangent with just those keywords, right? Oh like, boy. How has that been in this current day and age of Joe Rogan? Yeah. <laughs> Gosh, such good questions. Well, yeah, um, Illinois outside, outside, well, you know, just urban areas tend to, tend to be blue, right? Or, yeah. or, or tend to vote more democratically because i mean just even even in proximity of diversity right mm -hmm. you know more that you're exposed to different types of people the more you realize that we're all the same so i think i think that is, is is super fascinating because you know as i mentioned like i did undergraduate at in iowa mm -hmm. in iowa state university right and this is you know not an urban setting like chicago or so so i've i've I have experienced living in, in in both worlds or so, but I would say that you know there's actually the the Latino population in Iowa is actually growing because well, Iowa is a, is an agricultural state, and so there's lots of working opportunities that really attracts a lot of these a lot of these migrant mm -hmm. uh, workers. But how do I tie in this vaccine piece, this this global health piece, and misinformation? I'm definitely out. A product of my of my community. I don't know if I if we talked about this before, but my mother, her first job, and it still is her job today, was a dietary supplement saleswoman, mm. and she. Her main, her main customer service group was these Southside, like, Latin families, these Latinas, these mothers and stuff, and so she gave these products and sold these products in Spanish to them. And, and you know, growing up, I was I was always with her and, and, and I would see her passion come out and kind of really sell these these products that, you know, I grew up in as well. And I and I still use. Right. I have a, a cupboard in my bathroom full of the full of the Shackley products is what, is what she sells. But I think that is where where this this health, healthy bodies, healthy minds idea really, really came from is was my family mm -hmm. and you know, when I went to Iowa, of course, a very different setting and realized, you know, oh, wow, people, people are different and, and, you know, we view health different. And then when I moved to Burkina Faso to, you know, the content of, of, of Africa for, for Peace Corps, that was the moment where it was like, wow, like health is different. Mm -hmm. and health is, access to health is inequitable and people do not have the same access to it. And that's wrong, right? Like, shouldn't we all be have the opportunity to be healthy and to be you know, safe and strong. Yeah. But we don't. Don't have that. Especially, you know, in in a world so wealthy, right? I mean it, it's not it's not a question of impossibility anymore. Yeah. It's a question of unwillingness. So yeah. I exactly. think that's a really good way to put it.
You are also the president of diversity inclusion at Georgetown, correct? Yes. <laughs> We're in transition periods because you know I'm graduating. Yes, like, that is true. Yeah. How did that happen from your origin story? Did you just like run and they elected you? Like, <laughs> how did it happen? My charming personality. Yeah. So, no, no, many things. I mean, so, you know, health inequities was, was something that I studied and looked at and kind of made a career out of right access to to vaccines that we talked about. While I was working with my company, John Snow Inc., this public health consulting firm, um, they were also you know, affected by the racial reawakening that mm -hmm. was happening in the U.S. when Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, you know, all of these murders were happening in front of our eyes. And there was a, a movement within my company that, you know, we, we need to change. We need to, you know, if we are if we are a public health consulting firm, and that we are helping marginalize to get access to these things, to just health equity. How are we not an anti-racist organization? Mm -hmm. And that was the idea that kind of ballooned into this sort of movement within the company to change its ways in terms of how it operates, right? How does our leadership look like? How does our implementation look like? Are we considering these equitable pieces, right? This 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 gender piece as well. Are all of these things are coming into conversation with each other and actually being implemented and being seeped into our guidelines, into our policies of how we operate. Mm -hmm. And that experience of, you know, seeing this change happen within a private firm, right? I liked it. I liked the excitement of it. I, 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 I believed in the work and it was, you know, I really benefited a lot from, from getting these skills of, uh, that I'm, you know, very, very grateful for. And so when I came to Georgetown and, you know, that was all what we talked about, what, right? We had, we had so many sessions during admissions day about, you know, this is what Georgetown's equity agenda looks like. And then this is how we promote diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, really? Okay. Okay. But it was an opportunity for me to see how academic institutions operate and how are they applying it as well, right? So carrying on this private sector experience or so that I was carrying and then seeing how it happened in, in an academic setting, very different. Mm -hmm. But I talked about it and I, you know, tried to hear about, you know, hold Georgetown University, but then also my specific program, trying to hold them accountable about all of these things that they're trying to do, right? Mm -hmm. If you're trying to make our program more diverse or equitable, what are you doing? Are you, when you said that you were reviewing syllabus or syllabi to make sure that, you know, we have a well-rounded group of scholars of information that we're reading or so, how, how are you applying that? Are you measuring it? Is it accountable? How, who is the one that's doing this this data analysis, can we see it? Can we mm -hmm. understand it, right? And all of that manifested into, okay, maybe I should, you know, dedicate part of my graduate experience into this as well. And, you know, I had a really good friend who was the previous president of, of DIG, Diversity and Inclusion at Georgetown. And then, you know, she was the one who really recruited me and said, you know, Brian, I think you'd be great for, for this. Mm -hmm. um, and I love a challenge. And so I did it. I did it. Despite knowing that Georgetown was built on stolen land. Mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. despite knowing that, you know, Georgetown benefited from Jesuit plantations, right? We all know about Georgetown's elite identity in nature, right? But we don't know about how it got there, right? Why? So, so yeah. I think it's, I think it's important. I think it's really good work. I'm, I think it's a weird moment in time also just to be talking about it, like the conservative backlash against phrases and like acronyms has been outrageous to me. You know, like they, they take these words like critical race theory, DNI, and they, and they blow it up into this like non-existent thing. You know, it's, it's really bizarre. Yeah. And it's, it's been there before, right? Before yeah. it was the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion. It was the Office of Multicultural Center, right? Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we've, we've been having this conversation for decades now, almost centuries, right? And, and so now that it's being evolved into something, into, into something more, into something that's more specific, right? Mm-hmm. Now, like you said, that, that there is this, this, this backlash. You told me this once, and I'm going to say it on the record, but you don't have to use it or so, but I think you should hear it because I think it's really, really fascinating. And someone, someone said, someone asked me, do you think DEI is working? And then we talked about that and I said, you know, I like went off into my tangents. I was like, yes and no, and maybe. And then he said, who do you think created diversity, equity, and inclusion? And I was like, I'm not sure. And they were like, probably the oppressor, right? How do you take all of these sort of intersectional things that are happening and then kind of lump them up together and then a term that can make you feel good, that can make white people feel good? Yeah. Right? Yeah. And so instead of saying, you know, race, instead of saying these these sorts of things that we're, that we're working towards, diversity, equity, and inclusion is more digestible. I think that's really interesting. I want to comment on that. Not not to take away from what you said, but it reminds me of something that was happening when I was still working on this podcast. Like, it was still in the pre-production. Not this episode, but just in general. And as the description, I had put the term BIPOC. And mm-hmm. and my partner told me, he was, he was Hawaiian, he was like, I don't like it. And I'm like, I don't like it either, but it's like, you know, it's mm-hmm. like the way people phrase it. And she goes, you shouldn't say it. Like, you shouldn't say it. It doesn't sound good. And we both know, like, it's meaningless. So then I pivoted to saying Asian, Black, Latin, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And I do feel better that I did that, you know, not to pat myself on the back, but I think that was the right call. I think yeah. you're right, right? Like if these terms come from the oppressor, it's not really going to yeah. tear down the house. You know what I mean? Yeah. 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 And like we can like, yeah, that's so true. Like I remember like BIPOC was, was, was one of the things that became part of our language. And then quickly it kind of was like, no, we're not using that anymore. Yeah. But even in Georgetown, you know, GradGov has their diversity and inclusion co-directors or so, and they've been hosting these these retreats on a, on a on a semester basis. And it was on the first retreat that they had organized where they brought all of us in, and then they brought Mita in. And one of those students was like, yeah, Middle East is not a Middle Eastern term. Yeah. That was a term developed by, you know, not us. Yeah. And, you know, like, we, like, this this whole equity lens development that we're all trying to develop and kind of keep modified or so, I think there's a lot of like unlearning that has to come from our end, right? Mm -hmm. 
why we use Middle East terms. Where does it come from? So Hispanic is a term developed by the United States government. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but that's all of like the language that we have. And don't get me started on Latinx. I was and good. Latinx. <laughs> like, I, I was like <laughs> the second we got into language, I was like, should yeah. I ask this? Words matter. Yeah. <laughs> words matter and words are fluid. Yes. I think that's the biggest thing, right? And I feel like people are always going to change their mind about what they like and don't like. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. It's a personal thing. Like, I get it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to say my... I'll wait till <laughs> I know if I can say my opinion. <laughs> but let's go back to dig. To dig, yeah. I'm curious, in light of what we just talked about in terms of language and history, how has dig responded to hyster- historical and contemporary injustices at Georgetown? So... Dig itself, I see it as a as an as an organization that fulfills this coordination need, right? Mm-hmm. We have lots of different student organizations that are grassroots created, initiated, led, that are specifically identity-based, right? We have the Black Graduate Student Association, we have the MENA Forum, right? We have the Latinos in Public Policy, you know, all of these different organizations and Dig tries to fulfill this coordinating, this coordination role between all of these different organizations. We're not trying to replace them or, or, or you know, try to try to combine efforts or so. But it's a coordinating need amongst amongst all of these all of these moving parts. Mm-hmm. And what I really like about it is that it really centers the voice of those student organizations and those student groups um, to be at the forefront of their cause. And so that is how that is how DIG operates, is that it connects with students, it creates the space for belonging, but it also tries to create those linkages in between groups mm-hmm. because the liberation of one group is tied to the liberation of another. Mm-hmm. And I think that is how that is that is that is the best seat that DIG can fulfill is to, you know, strengthen linkages, fulfill these coordination efforts. And also to help students within Georgetown to, to develop their lens. I feel like that's part of, uh, that's kind of the tricky part, isn't it? Is that there are some students who come from a diverse background who also come from a certain socioeconomic class. And part of the challenge isn't only that it's a white space, but it's also a wealthy space. You know, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I do think it's important to say, to bring up the work that you do and helping change people's lens or help them adapt and adjust to the community. But if you want to speak on that, you can. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's still it's still this system of upholding Georgetown's elitism, right? Because it comes from wealth, because it comes with this sort of stature and this prestige when we when we say the name. But, you know, you don't necessarily no you do need money to come to georgetown or you need to be incredibly recognized by your talent as well Mm -hmm. and you know and georgetown i think would definitely would benefit from those perspectives right of 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 bringing them in and and having those students but then also retain those students it's one way it's one thing to have them to come through the door but if we're talking about undergrad students, like this is probably the first time that they've ever been on their own before. Yeah. And then you 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 pluck them out of the of a community that is so specific and is so niche to their identity, and then you put them into a space 
where it's hard to have to find representation of yourself, right? Mm -hmm. What is Georgetown's administration doing for those students, right? What is it? What is it that they can do? And I think that that program or that this or that support is still being developed, yeah. and it still needs a lot, a lot of work. Is there anything else you want to close out with before giving your socials to the people? Anything else to wrap to wrap this up? I have to give you a little bit of praise because I think you are absolutely wonderful. And ever since the first time that we met, I felt just incredibly comfortable and seen and heard from you. And so I think what you're doing and just asking me about all of these things, I think is, is quite incredible because no one has ever asked me before. So thank you. Of course. Wow, I look kind of shell-shocked. I know people can't see me, but that really took me by surprise. <laughs> you know, thank you so much. I found if you give people the chance to talk and listen, they will surprise you and impress you. So that's, thank you for your words. That's what I have to say about that. Um, then your socials before I try. Best place to, to find me is on Instagram. So that is bcast1386. B-C-A-S-T-1-3-8-6. And I will put that in the podcast notes below. Thank awesome. you so much. Thank you. This episode is actually going to maybe be the first time that there's a direct sequel to an episode. Because while I was editing this conversation, Brian called me. Brian called me uh, during his spring break all the way from Chicago to tell me that he learned some more things about his family that he did not previously know when we talked. Specifically when I asked why did they pick uh, Chicago. And I think it's going to be really cool to have him come back on and talk about it further. But I, I think it's interesting, right? If we think about this in the conversation... Let me rephrase that. If we think about this in the context of the conversation we just had, and we're thinking about migration economics and politics and the reasons people go the places they go i think it's really insightful i think it's really insightful and i'm glad brian followed up with me first of all but more importantly I, i'm really happy that he talked to his family after this conversation and learned some more about his own personal history um that's all i can you know really hope for in this project this has been Minority Report with me, your host, Salomon Flamenco. Brian's socials can be found in the podcast description, as can mine. Please don't forget to rate and follow Minority Report for all future updates, which there will be uh, much more coming very soon. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next time. Actually, you know what? I was thinking about this, too. Jon Snow was the guy who discovered cholera, right? Cholera or something else? Very, very close. Yes. John Jon Snow was a physician in London, mm -hmm. and he was tasked with finding out why people were being sick with cholera. With cholera. Okay. And then, and then what he did is that he found all of these clusters of, of people having cholera. He put them in a map, and then he discovered that it was the water system, the wells, the sewer system that was being traveling around that was where all these clusters were happening. So it was the water that was transferring cholera. Mm -hmm. And so he is known as the father of modern 
that would help. I guess John Snow does know something. Yeah. So much. <laughs> <laughs>